and uh, we did ask you to RSVP, but if you want to try to slip in unaware, uh, we encourage you to do that. Slide on in if don't aren't required to become a member by attending. Good if you just want to find out more about the church. We encourage you to join us for lunch. It's right behind us in this room following the service. Uh, let me encourage you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 1. If you came without a Bible, there should be somewhere one somewhere under the row in front of you in one of those uh, racks underneath the seat. Mark chapter 1. Let me ask you, how many of you have read Mark before? How many of you have read, were reading Mark this morning? Oh, wow. Cookies for both of you. <laughs> so, uh, that so many of us have read Mark before is, is extraordinarily dangerous. Um, you know, some of you have been reading Mark since you were a kid and heard these stories, and so it's profoundly uh, possible that you can you can approach this book uh, unintentionally, but thinking, you know all there is to know about Mark, and you take it for granted. Well, I just encourage you not to take Mark for granted. Uh, I think it will surprise you. I think, uh, I know God's Word will, uh, He will reveal further things to you in His Word. And uh, we're going to begin today... And let's read the first 13 verses as we start uh, this first account. This would have been the very first gospel uh, released, so to speak. Uh, the first, uh, first account of Christ to come across the, the newsstand, if you will. Um, Mark 1, 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes, one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the Word of God, God's uh, inerrant and authoritative 
an inspired word. Uh, may he bless what we've read, and let's pray for his help as we get started in the Gospel of Mark today. Father, we do come, and we pray that you would guard our hearts and minds from assuming we know that everything that there is to know about Mark's Gospel. Indeed, these words and verses are very familiar to us, and uh, let us to see, Lord, if possible, with new eyes, what your word says, what you say to us through your servant Mark. Help us, Christ Jesus, and help me to preach clearly and think clearly. We pray for your grace to do this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting your day off to a bad start. Award winner. Uh, this gentleman's day began with him getting up first thing, opening the paper, and found his name listed in the paper. In the obituaries. Um, news of his demise being uh, greatly overestimated, he decided to go down to the newspaper office, lodge a complaint with the editor, uh, and understandably upset, he asked, this is terrible. This is not only embarrassing to me, but this, uh, this can cause me a loss of business. How, how could this have happened? You understand the editor, of course, apologized at length. Someone had obviously made an error. Uh, it didn't know how it happened, but this did not appease the man at all. He remained very unpleasant. And again, the editor uh, tried to uh, apologize and, and calm this man's uh, spirit, but he would not be so uh, uh, calmed. And at his wit's end, uh, the editor was reaching exasperation and finally blurted out, listen, I'll tell you what, tomorrow I'll put you in the birth column and give you a fresh start. <laughs> it's probably shortly after that that the police were called. And <laughs> a fresh start is the very thing we need, isn't it? Uh, maybe you need a, a fresh start. Uh, humanity needs a fresh start. And this indeed is, is what we find in as Mark's gospel opens. Uh, a new era is dawning. Uh, a new king has arrived on the scene. Uh, and humanity is offered a fresh start by submitting to this king's reign. What does this amazing new beginning look like? This, this new day that dawns. What's involved in this fresh start that Mark introduces to us in these first 13 verses. How does he describe it? Mark describes this fresh start uh, by naming four features of this new day. Four features of this new era that has begun. First of all, we would assume that it includes a new beginning. Uh, a new beginning is the first feature. Uh, uh, as I said, a new era has dawned. I want to point out three things to you about this new beginning. And as the title and heading implies, uh, we know that that must include a new start. Uh, uh, the word beginning that Mark uses is more than meets the eye. It says the beginning of the gospel. 
Of course, it's the beginning of his account. I mean, after all, chapter 1, verse 1, that's obvious to us. He means it's more than the beginning of this account. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, if you're wondering, in that Greek version of the Old Testament, in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the very same word that's used there in Genesis 1.1, the beginning. And so uh, by using this very same term, Mark is cluing us in that this is a whole new beginning. This is the start of a new creation in Christ. Uh, uh, With the coming of Christ comes this fresh start, this new start. And then the second thing that we see is is a new announcement. Uh, 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 This new beginning requires a new proclamation. Uh, The beginning of the gospel. The word gospel there is what I'm referring to, it's one of those Christian words that you've heard so often that it probably fails to register anymore. I mean, admittedly, you've heard the word gospel. If if you heard it once, you've heard it a million times, as the saying goes, so stop exaggerating, you know. Um, uh, But it doesn't register with us. It means good news. Uh, in the secular world, this word was used to, uh, to announce the emperor's birthday. Sometimes the good news was uh, news of a, a great victory in battle. So it first referred to some historic event, uh, some, some announcement of a new situation for the world. But then they used it in the New Testament. Its meaning narrowed down to refer to the good news, the Christian message, the the news that Christ laid down his life on the cross and and died as our substitute. This good news is that sin can be forgiven by trusting in his atoning death. That's the good news that Mark's referring to. The good news of Christ's payment for sin is and the free offer of forgiveness. So we see a new announcement. Secondly, and then the third thing about this new beginning, we see a new king heralded. In the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, we see those two words, Jesus Christ, and we often, well let me say many believe that's just as simply the first and last name of Jesus, like Rob Murphy, Jesus Christ. Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. Christ means anointed one. That's what that Greek word, uh, Greek term means, and it's, it's translating a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word it's translating is Messiah. That means anointed one. Uh, in the Old Testament, when a prophet or a priest or a king would enter their new office, they would be anointed with oil uh, poured on their head. It, it, was, a, it was to symbolize uh, that the Holy Spirit would, would cover them in their new duties and empower them and enable them. 
But the New Testament also speaks of a specific anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah who would reign as God's king and save God's people and restore things to their proper state. That's what the word Christ refers to, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, God's anointed king. In the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, is what Mark is saying. And it further says that this anointed one, this anointed king, is God. It says the Son of God. And again, that's one of those Christian phrases that we read without thinking about it. The Son of God. Uh, as this term is used in the ancient world, it didn't necessarily mean you were the offspring of someone. Son of meant that you were exactly like the thing or person you were the son of. Uh, for example, in chapter 3, we're going to come across James and John who are called sons of thunder. Uh, means they had the qualities and characteristics of thunder. They had intense and outspoken personalities. For example, in Luke 9, when they were walking through Samaria, uh, and the Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus into their towns. And so along comes James and John, sons of thunder, and it says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's what it is to be a son of thunder. Good thing Peter wasn't there. Uh, or he's in the back of the line. They wouldn't have asked permission. Uh, it, it says Jesus rebuked them. <laughs> Just kind of funny. Uh, so when Jesus is called the Son of God, it means he has all the qualities and characteristics of God. In other words, he is God. God's anointed king is the son of God. Uh, he is God as well. So in this, in this new beginning, uh, in verse 1, this tells us why Mark is writing this letter. He writes this to prove to his readers that Jesus is God's anointed king. Uh, and we see... Uh, the climax of this in chapter 8 when he asks uh, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. So first we see this new beginning. Uh, it's got a new start in it. There's a new announcement. And, and the announcement is of a new king. But then there's a second um, element in this fresh start. A second feature of the fresh start is that this new beginning requires a new prophet. And as the scriptures had foretold uh, hundreds of years ago, John the baptizer appears as a herald of this uh, good news, as a herald of this new king. Uh, if you look down a couple verses to verse 4, you see the main statement of the arrival of this prophet. Verse 4 very simply says, John appeared. 
the John he's referring to is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth from Luke, uh, described at great length there by Luke in his account. Uh, also, John is the cousin of Jesus. And this appearing, uh, introduced by Mark in such a kind of understated way, kind of nonchalant, John appeared. It is the, it is the most important event in Israel's history probably for 300 years. And so as we are so used to reading this, John appeared, by the way, kind of, you know, offhand. This is uh, one uh, man says, an, an end times event of the first magnitude and indicated that the decisive turning point in the history of salvation was at hand. Uh, this is a crux in history, a, a huge turning point. God is speaking again, uh, who hasn't spoken in centuries in this massively important event is introduced by these simple words, John appeared. What comes before those two words and what comes after those two words tells us how John appeared. And Mark describes John's appearance in four ways. He appears as Scripture foretold he would, as the prophets described him up in verse 2. Look at what it says. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It's actually quoting from both Malachi and Isaiah. But he just names Isaiah because in quotes back then, you just named the major prophet. But both Malachi and Isaiah foretold that God would send a herald before his king arrived, a messenger to prepare the way for his anointed king, a herald to announce his arrival. I love the way this guy says it. While John and Jesus may seem to appear out of the blue, this citation of Scripture makes it clear that they appear out of the blueprint of God's plan. He appears just as Scripture said he would appear. He appears, secondly, appealing for repentance. He appears calling Israel for a change of heart. And we see this in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So upon his arrival, he summons uh, Israel uh, to change direction. He's calling them to a complete change of heart. Uh, repentance refers to turning away from sin on the one hand and turning toward God on the other. This is what verse 3 is referring to when it says in that quote from Isaiah, um, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Making straight paths meant that they were called to give the Lord ready access to their hearts as well as make straight their whatever was crooked, to straighten out anything that didn't line up with God's word. 
And then I want you to see further here that in verse 4, they were summoned to the wilderness or the desert, your version might say, for this repentance. This was uh, referring to the region uh, between the hill country of Judea and the Dead Sea. So here's Jerusalem right here. And this blue line in the middle is the Jordan uh, River. It says wilderness of Judah right here. And it extended on both sides of the Jordan. Up here, this is the, I believe that's the Jabbok River. It could have even gone further north. Galilee is somewhere up here. That's where the first half of Mark takes place up in Galilee, uh, around the Sea of Galilee. That's up north. This is where the region John is baptizing in, in the wilderness uh, of Judah, and it looks something like this. I'm not sure how well you can see that, but, you know, first of all, notice that it's not green. It is a pretty desolate-looking place, uh, probably the Jordan River Valley right there uh, in the center, running through the center. Uh, it's called the wilderness. It's called the desert uh, for a reason. But not only is it a physical location, it also has reference uh, to something spiritual. It's got spiritual significance in Israel's history. It was a different wilderness than this one, but it was in the wilderness wanderings. Those are described in Numbers. It was in those wanderings that the Lord cared for Israel as his firstborn son. And the book of Deuteronomy says this about the wilderness, that first wilderness. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And so when John summons Israel to the wilderness he's calling them to go back to that place where they were the Lord's dearly loved son he's calling them to acknowledge how stubborn and disobedient they've been as his people and it's a summons to reestablish their status as his beloved son in other words he's calling them to make a fresh start as a sign that they had changed their hearts, that they had turned around, that they had done this. As an indication of that, uh, that they had turned from sin and turned back to the Lord, John called them to be baptized, to be dipped or immersed in the waters of the Jordan River. I mean, that's like calling a leopard to change his spots the Jewish people had never been summoned to something like this. It was unheard of. Now, if a non-Jewish person converted to the Jewish faith, that non-Jewish person was immersed in a bath at the temple called a mikvah bath uh, to signify his cleansing. But to, to Jewish people, uh, them being baptized, as one man says, was a wholly novel idea. 
And another says the Jews were now being asked to do something they had never done before in their history. Jews being baptized? Unheard of. So unheard of. And so unusual for them. They referred to John as John the baptizer. How do they respond? Look at verse 5 in your Bible. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now we have to read the word all and understand that this is an instance of hyperbole. Um, Certainly not every person in Judea went out to the wilderness. As we see later on, there are still many who were resistant and unrepentant. But a, a great number did. Thousands upon thousands. Uh, according to one pastor, as many as 300,000 went out to John in the wilderness. So uh, over a quarter of a million people went out to him in that barren place to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. So he appears, secondly, appealing for, for repentance, for a change of direction. And third, he appears with a peril like Elijah. Uh, look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is far more than just a, a comment on John's fashion statement that he was a manly man. He was dressed like a man of the wilderness. He was. Uh, that's the way prophets often dressed, but that's specifically how Elijah is described. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, 2 Kings 1.8. And so Elijah wore the same outfit. What's, what's the deal? Because in Malachi, the Lord said that Elijah would come before his king. That he would send Elijah. Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a, a decree of utter destruction. Jesus identifies John as Elijah in Matthew 11. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, this John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, so, so third, John comes dressed like Elijah, showing that he's again fulfilling a prophecy of Scripture. John is ticking all the boxes, as we say. And then he appears in a fourth way, and that's announcing someone mightier than him. And we find this announcement in verse 7. It says, and he preached. And the word preached is the word for heralded. Uh, K. Russo, it, it means to lift up your voice. Uh, it, it means, hear ye, hear ye, as the 
prophet would say in a much stronger voice than mine is at the present moment. Uh, hear ye, hear ye, the herald would say. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is not just false modesty from John, this statement about being unworthy to touch the strap of his sandal. John knows who he's introducing. Uh, and and this, this duty he refers to, uh, loosening the strap of his sandal, that, that's, that was the job of an unskilled household laborer. When his master came home, uh, he would uh, take off his master's sandals. And John says, I'm not even worthy to loosen the sandals of this person coming after me. He is so great and mighty that I'm not worthy even to do that. And the reason he's not worthy, he says in verse 8, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, we read more about that in Acts 2, and that occurred on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down on his disciples. This new beginning requires a, a new prophet. And so John appeared as Scripture foretold he would. John appeared appealing for repentance. John appeared with a peril like Elijah. And John appeared announcing someone mightier than he. Well, a new beginning, a new prophet, all to introduce a new creation. That's the uh, third feature of this fresh start, a new creation. And God the Father launches His new creation through Jesus the Son. This is what we see next in verses 9 through 11. There are three elements here I want to point out to you as we go through. First of all, uh, the first element is the Son's substitution. We see this in verse 9 as Jesus becomes the substitute for sinners. Verse 9 in your Bible says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is a much shorter version of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Other versions say that John resisted, but Christ said you must do this to fulfill all righteousness. But if this baptism was a sign that someone had a change of heart and confessed their sin, why is Jesus, the sinless Son of God, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins? He had never sinned. In fact, Peter says he had committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. The reason he submits to this baptism is to fully identify with those in need of redemption and to take their place as a substitute. I want you to hear Dr. Sinclair Ferguson explain this. What we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he had come to stand where sinners should stand 
receive what they deserved and in return give to them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. Ferguson describes it as Jesus standing in the muddy Jordan River and it, this baptism was uh, for the others was a symbol of their sins being washed off and here Christ goes into this uh, river so to speak filled with Israel's sins and allows them to be poured over himself uh, he is publicly acknowledging the kind of gospel that's coming it's, a, it's news of substitution that he takes the place of sinners on the cross and look at what happens uh, in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens, the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Please note, it doesn't just say the heavens opened. Scripture does mention that in other places, that the heavens are open. Mark says that the heavens were torn open. And this is the same word used later on after the crucifixion in chapter 15, he describes how the curtain at the temple was torn from top to bottom. It's the same word. The heavens are rent asunder, if you will. Uh, torn. It's, it's the very thing that Isaiah prayed for in Isaiah 64. He, Isaiah's mourning the sad state of God's people. And he, he prays this, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is what's happening. It's not so much that we now have access to God, but that God has access to us with the heavens being torn and the Spirit descending on Christ as a dove. This is, this is very similar to what occurs in Genesis 1, uh, just as the Spirit hovers over those waters at creation. He descends on Christ to again give us a picture of this new creation. Uh, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in that same way, the Spirit is present here descending like a dove at the start of this new creation through Christ. And through this, the Father is saying, Jesus is the one in whom I will begin again. He's the one through whom this fresh start comes. So we see first the Son's substitution. I didn't put that up. We see the Spirit's descent on Christ as a dove. And thirdly, we see the Father's approval come. God the Father fully endorses Jesus the Son as His anointed King. Look at verse 11 with me. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
the Father's statement of approval, again, is taken from the Old Testament. A couple passages, perhaps, but in particular, Isaiah 42, where the Father says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This indicates uh, that, that Christ was chosen by the Father's good pleasure, by the Father's sovereign choice. Jesus was selected to rule His people and the Spirit descending on Him and the Father's words approving Him uh, indicate that Christ has now assumed this role as, as God's anointed King. So we see the Father's approval. Thirdly, this is a new creation begun when the Father launches His new creation through Christ. And then we see one final thing. Fourthly, we see a new Adam. As Paul referred to Christ as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, this is, this is what we find here. Jesus, the new and better Adam. Uh, he had come to undo what the first Adam had done. Look in verse 12 with me. It says here, the Spirit immediately. That is John's favorite word, by the way. I I'm, think I'm going to get a t-shirt with the, the word immediately on it, the Greek word, because uh, this is how much he loves the word. In the entire New Testament, it occurs 51 times. John uses the word 41 times. So he's very heavy on, that means that only 10 times in the rest of the New Testament. That means it's his favorite word. And he does that to, to give the book action in motion. We've already seen it up in verse 10. Um, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And look at how the wilderness is described here. We have to acknowledge, first of all, he was in the wilderness to begin with, so this means he was driven further into the wilderness. And this wilderness is, is described as a, as a place of temptation, a place filled with wild animals. Mark's the only one who mentions that. A place where Jesus is sustained by angels. And so Mark is describing the wilderness as a place under sin's curse. Remember the earth was cursed in Genesis 3 uh, from Adam and Eve's sin. And so one man describes it like this. Uh, the wilderness is a barren place, a place of desolation and danger as the wild beasts indicate. This wilderness represents the uncultured place of the curse. Paradise lost the realm of Satan into this wilderness, into this place of the curse. Christ, the second Adam, enters to undo what the first Adam had done. To reverse the curse and open the way back to the tree of life. Listen to, again, Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way. Jesus Christ came to be what Paul called the last Adam and the second man. He came to undo what Adam had done by his sin and fall. 
But if he was to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter into the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. It was in a fallen, broken, sinful, disintegrating world that Jesus faced temptation and the powers of darkness in order to win for his people a way back into the tree of life. And where Adam failed, Christ succeeds. Not just here. Mark doesn't describe his victory over Satan. Because as Mark is writing this, he wants, to, he wants us to see that the greatest victory takes place at the cross where Christ defeats Satan uh, and undoes his power and hold over us. So the fourth thing we see is the new Adam enter our world, enter the place of the curse uh, to undo it and to open the way for us to go back to the tree of life. This is Mark's fresh start. A new era, a new dawn, a new king has arrived, and humanity will be offered a fresh start through the reign of this new king. It has four features. A new beginning, a new prophet, a new creation, and a new Adam. So I wonder if you need a fresh start. That sounds an awful lot like a cliche, and I don't mean to be cheesy. Uh, I wonder if you really do need to begin again. And it could be that you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord. You have never done what John called people to do. You've never had a change of heart. You, you might have mumbled some prayer down in the front of a church at one point, but this heart change that John talks about, this change of turning away from, that's foreign. So maybe you need that start to begin with today to turn from your sin or maybe you're a really nice guy and maybe you need to turn from your self-righteousness. Your good deeds that you think are what makes you okay in the sight of God. Listen, they don't. You can be good, you can be even better than, than you are today, but that won't, that won't put you in front of God on that final day. What will? There's only one thing, and that's the atoning death of Jesus. And you relying on that and nothing else. That is what will put you before the throne of God, free from blemish and accusation. And if you've never made that start, that's where you begin. And God paved the way by sending His King and opening the way uh, by reversing the curse through His death on the cross so that you could enter simply by uh, putting your hope and reliance and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. Maybe you need a new start like some people in Israel did. Maybe you did trust in Christ, but, you know, 
You've been out there in the wilderness a while. You've gotten away. And like John called them, maybe, maybe you need to go back to that place where you started, where, where the Lord was real to you and where He was everything to you. And where you were talking to Him and hearing Him talk to you. And, and maybe, maybe you've gotten away from that. Look, listen, if you've gotten away from that, you need to go back. You need a fresh start this morning. You need to go back to the beginning like John called Israel to do. And go back to His Word. And go back to crying out to Him in need. The point of life is never, never to become self-sufficient. That is not the goal of the Christian experience. God never wants you to grow to the point where you no longer need Him. And what I have found is the exact opposite. Is He will bring you to your knees to where you need nothing but Him. So if you feel all grown up out there walking through life on your own, well, friend, you need to go back to the beginning. You need a fresh start today. To go back to the wilderness to go back to where you were his dearly loved child like you were at the start and start over. Um, and finally, if you really don't need a new start today, there are plenty of people around you who really do need a fresh start. And they need to hear how to make that fresh start. And they need to hear the truth that if anyone in Christ becomes a new creation, you might not need the fresh start, and that's okay, but there are people around you who really do. And they need to hear it from your lips how to start over and how to gain the things Mark has been talking about about today. Well, Christ, we implore you to come uh, today into our lives. If anyone needs to let you in for the very first time, that they would uh, be drawn by the fact that the Father went to such great lengths as to send His own Son uh, to enter our cursed world to become the new Adam and to open the way back to the tree of life so that we can find forgiveness from our sins. Lord, draw that, whoever that is, to, to trust in Jesus as, as uh, their Savior, to trust in His atoning sacrifice, to trust in Him for the payment of their sins. And Lord, others of us here in the state of having grown up a little too much and feeling a little too self-sufficient, need to be brought back to that place where we are entirely dependent on you and we cling to your word and cry out to you and need you so badly. Some of us need to go back there. We've gotten too wealthy or too fat 
or too well fed to feel our need. And we confess this is wrong. And bring us back to that place where we are walking with you as your, as your dearly loved child. And Lord, for the people in our world who have no idea about this fresh start that's available, I pray you would help us to be faithful, to love them, and be concerned enough to tell them the way to start over through faith in Jesus, your Son. Please do this work in us and among us. And Savior, we ask this all in your name. Amen.